We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Okay, good evening, one and all. We're back. It is our privilege to turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 9. First of all, it is a privilege to have a Bible. Second of all, to be able to read and to be able to do so together. Before we get started, I just thought I'd share this with you. I received it today in the mail. It is um, sponsored by uh, First Baptist Church of Troy and Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. It is called, uh, it's a one-day apologetics conference for college students, um, and I'm sure that we can get some, uh, you know, seniors in high school in there as well, uh, especially if they are to go to college classes <clears throat> uh, back there. Uh, but uh, it's called Christianity versus Everybody. So it's an interesting uh, apologetics conference, uh, questions such as how could a good God allow evil is the Bible homophobic? Is Christ really the only way? And uh, there's a little bit of information here as well. We have several of these on the back table. If you would be able to grab one, if uh, you know somebody that might like to go. Uh, we are, I say we as a church, are paying the $25 per person if they want to go, okay? So cost should not be a factor. It's going to be enough uh, to uh, travel up there to Troy for the conference. We've got to get ourselves up there. But uh, that is an invitation for you. Uh, and I wanted to just publicize that a little bit, try to do that again over the next couple of weeks. Uh, let's turn our Bibles again to Acts chapter 9. We're in the last segment of the chapter. You remember that the church had experienced the Great Tribulation. Uh, I, I use that term loosely, uh, very difficult persecution, not the Great Tribulation. That'll come in, when it does in the future. But uh, the Apostle Paul, or Saul as he was called in his Hebrew name, was a very uh, dangerous uh, enemy of the church, persecuted it. Persecutor turned into the persecuted when he came to Christ, and then people started trying to kill him because he had uh, brought... Uh, disrepute upon their uh, Jewish faith and, and so on. And so after this all came about, it says in verse 31, the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. One of the things that happens during persecution is that it can purify the church, it can strengthen the church, it can cause the church to be focused on that which is most important and then afterwards, as here, there was a, a season of peace and growth. It says they walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit, and they were multiplied. So they had a good time of rest. And during that time, Peter continues to follow the Lord Jesus' um, itinerant pattern. And he went through all parts of the country, verse 32, just like Jesus did, remember? I mean, this is Peter just 
continuing what Jesus did with the disciples. You know, I must go to the other cities also for this purpose I came forth, to preach the gospel of the kingdom to these people. And so what does Peter do? He just keeps on doing it. Now with the additional glorious information that Jesus died for our sins and rose again from the dead, that the Prince of Life who came to proclaim peace with God was hung on a tree, buried in a tomb, rose again the third day, and ascended into heaven. He also by then empowered the disciples by the Spirit to minister the Word of God and to evangelize. And so he goes around and he encounters a certain man. This man was, I think, likely not a disciple because normally when you encounter a disciple, I just my eyes just lit on Acts 9, verse number 10. Now there was a certain disciple, not a certain man, but a certain disciple, and that was Ananias. Here we have a certain man, not saved probably yet, His name was Aeneas, A-E-N-E-A-S, however you want to say that. Um, He had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. So he knew knew what it was to uh, be up and around and walk and run and work and all of that before, probably as a teenager up to those years. And now he's a man and he has been unable to do that for eight years. We don't know how old uh, he was, uh, I think, here. And... um, He was paralyzed. So uh, Peter said to him, Aeneas, uh, not I heal you, Jesus heals you. Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And he arose immediately. This is again, just like what Jesus did when he healed a a man. uh, Wasn't it at the pool of uh, Bethesda or something? You know, this guy, bedridden, he says, get up, take up your mat and go home. And he's carrying his little bed and, and uh, go, goes home. And the disciple, or the Jews are like, hey, why, why are you carrying that thing? Uh, well, because God told me to. <laughs> uh, you know, um, that'd be a good reason to do it. And, uh, of course, they couldn't see through that or see past that, so they just complained about it. But a uh, very similar pattern here again that Peter follows. And uh, so... It says uh, he arose immediately, his healing was thorough, his physical rehab was done immediately. And then it says all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So this is in the area roughly around where Tel Aviv is today, not far from the coast, um, 10 or 12 miles, I think, as I recall, between the cities. Well, we'll see here in a moment. Um, I mean, some distance from where Cornelius was, which will come up in chapter 10. But there's one more section of chapter 9 that we have to to touch, and that's in verses 36 to the end of the chapter. Um, Peter has uh, done this miracle to Aeneas. Uh, Everybody knows that he's he's there. Um, The uh, people... We're hearing him preach, not only seeing him minister miracles, but hearing him preach uh, the message of Christ and responding to it. And uh, I don't think they were responding just, you know, because they were happy about miracles, but they realized that what Peter was saying was true. They uh, saw the verified messenger, by verified by these miracles. They saw the power of God. But those things uh, in the miracles themselves cannot save. It's the power of God applied in salvation that saves. And 
So they saw that. Now, there was a different situation in verse 36. At Joppa, which is a nearby city, there was a certain disciple. Okay? Notice it wasn't a certain man or a certain woman in this case. It was a certain disciple named Tabitha. We would probably say Tabitha because we're accustomed to the pronunciation in English with the accent on the first syllable. But it's probably uh, Tabitha, the Hebrew name, and Dorcas, which is how we would say it in English, but it's probably Dorcas. It's an accent on the last uh, syllable, the Greek name, the Greek version of her name. And uh, this woman, it says, was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. So notice, she's not just a do-gooder. She's a disciple who did good. She's a disciple who did good works, full of charitable deeds. And uh, she apparently was a, a seamstress. Well, that's a very important function. I mean, today... Almost nobody gets their clothing made by a seamstress. They're all manufactured by machines and by you know people who use sewing machines. Some, you know, obviously they do that still. But this was a very important task in a society that didn't have the kind of mechanization that we have today. And we see this in verse number thirty-nine where there were friends of hers who were showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. So uh, very meaningful works that uh, she did, full of charitable deeds. And I just emphasize, you know, that's how uh, Christians should be. We should be able to say that each one of you is full of good works full of good works. So she became ill and died, verse 37. Even good people do that. Even good people become ill and die. Just like Job was a good man and he became ill and he had a lot of difficulties uh, in his family because not because of his sin but because of the devil and God uh, putting him to the test as it were. So she died but the Lord is going to use her death as a well-known person with a well-publicized death to have a community-wide impact and witness. Now, most of the time, God doesn't choose to, re- to uh, resurrect somebody immediately. Most of the time, he does not choose to resurrect somebody immediately. How many times uh, could I have wished, doing a funeral in this church, that God would raise up the person that was in this casket that we put over here on my left or in the back of the church and just have the funeral over with and just go and have a nice meal? A lot of rejoicing. (laughs) Well, that has to wait. But God still does use people's passing as a witness, doesn't he? People, when they pass away, they can have an impact on their loved ones that they might not have had when they were alive. So the text tells us that 
they prepared her body, as their custom, I guess, was, and they laid her in an upper room. And this is prepared, perhaps, for mourners to pass by and observe for a, a little religious service, and they would be burying her, all else being equal, quite soon, probably the same day or early, early the next day, within 24 hours. But I think there was the hope that since they had heard Peter was in the area, that he might come and do something for them about this death that had just visited their community by working a miracle to raise her from the dead. So in verse 38, because the cities were nearby each other, they knew Peter was there. They sent two men to him, so they found him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Probably sent two men because the journey was not trivial, Uh, and to add uh, persuasive power to them to bring Peter along. The journey was 10 to 12 miles between Joppa and Lydda, where Peter was previously. Uh, The text doesn't tell us all the details of their conversation, but that's easily enough understood from the context. They wanted Peter to hurry up, even though they did have a good measure of faith. And I, I reflected on that a moment. You know, Peter, you've got to hurry. This person's dead. It's, it's like the miracle seems to be harder the longer the person is dead. Does that make sense? But from God's perspective, that thought is a bit humorous, isn't it? Harder? It's like, you know, multiplying uh, anything by zero. It's always zero. It's not hard. Uh, a miracle is no harder for God if the person has been dead four hours or four days or 400 or 4,000 years, as will be the case with some who have died, and God will resurrect them that many years after their physical death. So it's not difficult for him, but from a human perspective, I know you see, like, oh boy, the longer she's gone, you know, it's like, it's like Lazarus. Lord, he's been dead four days. I mean, he's beyond the stinky stage. I mean, he's, he's into it, you know. It's really bad. And uh, smells and he's de- decomposing and there's nothing much there um, to resurrect. Well, there's plenty for the Lord. He called, he called him forth. Well, anyway, Peter hurried to the neighboring city and the people presented him in verse 39 with ample evidence of her good deeds. Now, she didn't have to be a believer for Peter to, to uh, resurrect her, I suppose. I actually haven't thought about that. Are there any examples of unbelievers who have been resurrected in the Bible? Um, that's an interesting question. But God could certainly resurrect uh, anyone that he so pleased, as far as I understand theologically. But ample evidence that she was a good woman. She was very beneficial to the community. She died, it seems, before her time. And so, verse 40, Peter puts them all out and knelt down and prayed. Now, I never really stopped to think about too much why he prayed, except when I visit this passage and stop and think about it like this to share with you. Um, Why do you think he prayed? Well, I think he prayed to ask the Lord what his will was about this matter. Namely, would you, God, have her to be raised from the dead, or do you not want that to be the case? And, of course, everybody there is hoping and, you know, 
crossing their fingers, so to speak, that God will have her to be made alive yet again. But we don't know that. It's not always God's will to heal. Think of Trophimus, for example. Paul says, Trophimus I left in Miletus, and he was sick. Why didn't you heal him, Paul? Well, I don't know why he didn't heal him. He just didn't heal him. He realized it wasn't God's will for that to be the case. Uh, remember when the disciples faced a difficult situation with the demon? They said, Lord, why could we not cast him out? And the Lord said, this one only comes out by prayer. Some manuscripts said, and fasting. The idea is, you know, it's earnest prayer. Uh, you just didn't have quite the, uh, the, the connection with the Lord, so to speak, the power to do that. Prayer was necessary to cast out, in that case, such a beastly demon as that. But and evidently, praying, Peter realized it would be God's will that he could do this, God could do this through him. He could be the instrumentality through which this lady was raised from the dead, and this would have a beneficial impact on the gospel ministry. And so after praying, Peter spoke some words to Tabitha, and she opened her eyes, and she sat up, and she got out of the bed. He said, Tabitha, Tabitha, arise, and she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Now, that must have been odd <laughs> for her and for them, for him. Uh, it didn't happen all the time. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up and called the saints and widows and presented her alive. Now, this follows a pattern. Again, Peter is following his Lord in Mark chapter 5, verse 35. In Mark 5, 35, Jesus ministers, and this is in this context where this kind of interleaved two-part miracle where he's asked to go and to uh, serve Jairus, Jairus' daughter, lying at the point of death. And then as he, Jesus goes there, a woman who has a bleeding issue touches his garment. He, she becomes well. And so on the way then, um, the uh, news comes that things aren't looking good for this girl. Verse 35 says, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? You know, again, this is not a humorous situation, but troubling the teacher, if he's agreed to come with you, if he's agreed to look at your daughter, it's not a trouble to him at all. Not a trouble to him whatsoever. And uh, as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, that is, do not be afraid, only believe. Only believe what? Only believe my daughter's dead? No, only believe in the Messiah who's able to raise her from the dead. The Messiah who is the resurrection and the life. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Verse 37, and he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Notice that Peter is present when this occurs. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult in those who wept and wailed loudly. And he asked, why, this, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And I, you know, there's some question here. Is she really still dead at this moment? I take it that she has already revived and, and is sleeping, not sleeping in death because he says she's not dead but sleeping. But in any case, whatever, 
you know, at that moment, the case was she would, she would be raised again momentarily if she wasn't already alive, but still not fully uh, healed. They, they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumai, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Interesting that it's Talitha like Tabitha. It's a little bit different, but it's similar. Uh, one is the personal name, and the other, here's a, a, a description, little girl, in, in Aramaic. Kumai is from kum, to, to rise up, command. Immediately, the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age. I guess that's what you can do when you're that young. Uh, you can just pop right up out of bed. I'm in Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verse 42 and, uh, yeah, Peter extended a hand to uh, Tabitha and helped her up out of the bed. Here this little girl rose and walks, for she's 12 years of age. <laughs> you know, no pain in the joints or anything like that. <laughs> and they were overcome with great amazement. Can you imagine Jairus, the father, and the mother? I mean, she probably fell over practically. You know, she was already overcome with terrible emotion from the death of her daughter, apparent death of her daughter. Now to see this and to see this miracle worker before them. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given to her to eat. It's interesting. If you see a depiction of this in a movie form, I saw one just recently in his little snippet, and how, how real it is. You know, here's this girl, she's probably been sick for days and the Lord raises her up and, and says, you know, to her, this is added from the narrative here, but says to her, uh, daughter, you must be hungry. <laughs> oh yeah, she's hungry. She says to, Jesus turns to mom, why don't you give her something to eat? <laughs> I'm sure mom had no problem rustling up some food for her daughter from that day forward. Absolutely. What an encouragement. So Peter, with Tabitha, does something very similar. You know, uh, goes in, raises her from the dead, and uh, it says there in verse number 41, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, Acts 9.42, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. So this sets up Peter's lodging at Joppa in preparation for God calling him to another place, Caesarea. So two men came from, uh, from Joppa to Lydda to bring him back. And there he is in that city. And then he stays with this Simon of Tanner. And then from there, he's going to be called to Caesarea, which is yet farther away. It's about, as I recall, 35 miles to the north northwest a little bit. And uh, so this all sets that up. And God arranged everything so that in accordance with his providence, the events of chapter 10 and 11 would come right on time for Peter. Now, it's somewhat interesting to me that Peter stayed in the home of a tanner. Okay, I used to know a, uh, a classmate of mine, his last name was Tanner. Okay, But he wasn't Tanner because he did this or his father did this, although maybe he did in the past as a trade in their family. 
that is their family history in, in, in that sense. But um, a tanner, a tanner is, an, is kind of an unclean job. A tanner works with a- dead animals and skins them and it probably is also a bunch of smelly work, you know. Maybe Peter was beginning to see that dietary laws and cleanliness don't affect whether somebody can become a Christian or not. And God was preparing him that way. More on that when we come to Acts chapter 10. So we go back to the beginning of the book of Acts. Luke says to Theophilus, the first account of Theophilus I made of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And now Jesus is continuing his work in the world. In fact, remember what Jesus said to his disciples. You know, basically, I've done these works, greater works than these you will do. Peter, raising people from the dead, preaching the gospel. Paul, doing the same and preaching far greater geographical extent than Jesus did. Um, Not necessarily greater in quality, if you will, but greater in number of these works. And he's doing, Jesus is doing that through the disciples. So the implication is Jesus continues to do and teach things through the apostles. And they were doing this by the power of the Spirit, which Jesus himself had sent to them when he went to heaven. So Jesus was never finished with Peter, even though Peter denied him three times. As, as he did his itinerant preaching, Peter was still feeding the little lambs that Jesus told him to in John 21 when he asked him those three questions. He followed the Lord's practice of itinerancy to cover a lot of ground and preach the gospel wherever he could. Now, we can't do the healing and resurrection ministries like Peter did. God ordained for those to stop early in the church era after the foundation of the church was well established. But there are other things that we are able to do, even similar to this passage of Scripture, and therefore should be focused on doing. You know, we might think, hey, listen, I'm as powerless as that paralyzed man was to get up and make his bed. But what happened to the paralyzed man when the command came? the ability came as well, okay? He was powerless to get up, his, get up and make his bed until the Lord told him to get up and make his bed. And once his obedience began, God supplied the needed power. Specifically for us, we're to be persistent and obedient in preaching the name of Jesus, preaching that Jesus is the Christ, preaching that Jesus is the Son of God, and sharing that message with other people. You might think, I can't do that, but you can do that. God's commanded you to do that. So take that to heart and know that that is the case. You might feel inadequate for the task. I'm sure Peter did when he started out. Now also, to the extent that we do um, good works, like Peter was doing, or like uh, Tabitha was doing, or, you know, Dorcas, Uh, we must do them with a purpose to spread the gospel, not merely to be a force for social change. You with me? Good works in this case, uh, for example, verse 42, it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed on the Lord. 
or verse 35. So, that is, in, in the face of this miracle of raising this man Aeneas up, so all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. That's the, the point. It's not just to go around healing, go around you know, filling people's pockets or filling their mouths or filling their cupboards, filling their refrigerators. It's to do good in order to spread the gospel. So I always have to keep that in mind. And then finally, let us thank God for a time of peace in our part of the world. Pray that the church here, like then and there, will be comforted in the Holy Spirit, multiplied, walking in the fear of the Lord, and be edified. That's verse 31 again. So let's pray that just now as we close this evening. Father, we ask that you would help us to be edified, strengthened, comforted, to walk in the fear of the Lord. Help us to do good in order that we may have audience hearing for the gospel message of Christ. Not just to do good works to feel good about ourselves, that's selfishness. Lord, I pray that You'll watch over us when we have difficulties obeying you and know that we can indeed do that. We don't expect that you're going to raise many people from the dead in this era right now, but we do expect that when the rapture comes, you'll raise everyone in Christ from the dead simultaneously. And for that great event, we look forward. Pray your blessing uh, until then. Help us to serve you faithfully not to be too uh, discouraged when difficult things come or things don't seem to be going just right. In Jesus' name, amen.